What? A country without Coca-Cola? What century are we living in? Up next on the Crossing Ideas podcast. Welcome to the Crossing Ideas podcast. I'm Mark Sassy. This podcast focuses on understanding today's world through the lens of a lifetime of international living. Episode 3, Vietnam, B.C., Before Coca-Cola, How Capitalism Saved Vietnam. How do you define a poor country? Could the lack of a Coca-Cola bottling plant be the litmus test? Perhaps. Does the presence of a unnecessary yet delightful soft drink help define a society that in the very least is trying to embrace a small part of the global economy? Maybe. I arrived in Vietnam at Noi Bai Airport, north of Hanoi, in August of 1994, with my wife and small child and two other teammates who were tasked with teaching English. The ride home. If anything stands out about that first few months in Vietnam in 1994, it was the ride home from the airport. It was at night. Sheets of rain, unlike I had ever seen before, just poured down. We were picked up by our university in a van, and I was absolutely dead tired. I remember my head flopping around in the back seat like a Raggedy Ann doll. We had to get to the city of Haiphong, which It's a quick jaunt from Hanoi if you are in Vietnam today. But in 1994, it could take four hours to get to Haiphong, depending on the circumstances. There were two one-way bridges that also shared the span with a train. So if you happened to catch a train going over the bridge, you could be waiting a long time if you had a convoy of vehicles in front of you. I remember the scenes well. Uh, Many times, the vehicles would pull up to the bridge And at one point, they would just turn off the car. People would get out. They would have a snack. There were people selling things there because the wait time would be brutal. Anyways, we're in the van heading to Haiphong. Now, we're not on a highway like they have today. No, this, this, this road had potholes. It was anything but smooth, anything but comfortable. At one point, I had fallen asleep. And suddenly the van screeched to a halt and my head snapped forward and and the lights of the van's headlamps were shining on a drenched group of massive gray, big horned water buffaloes. And I remember them just staring. It looked like they were staring at us. And they stared at us like they were asking me a question, like they were looking at me saying, what are you doing here? What's an American doing here in a place like this? Indeed, great question. My arrival in Vietnam happened just months after the U.S. lifted the trade embargo against Vietnam. There hadn't been Americans in northern Vietnam in decades. It really was like walking back in time. 1994 was only 19 years after that last U.S. helicopter lifted off of the Saigon Embassy in 1975, which ended the Vietnam War. 1994 was just a few years after the Vietnamese government had moved away from what they called the Thoi Bao Cup, 
a period of time where the government provided, or what we might call a command economy or a socialistic economy. There were no Western products. Coca-Cola had yet to arrive in Vietnam. And in the 20th century, when a country was opening to foreign investments, soft drinks were typically one of the first ones in. They were attractive and they were cheap. On occasion, I would see a bottle of Chinese Coca-Cola. When I was curious enough to buy one, it was very flat and quite miserable. And who knows, it, it could have been a bootlegged version. Very possible. Things were just different. Everything was different around me. We had a baby at the time and we used cloth diapers. And the school provided us with the washing machine, but the washing machine had a separate wringer. So you had to reach in to take out the wet diapers to put it in the wringer just to get the water out of the diaper. But hey, can't complain. We had a washing machine. No, no dryer, but we had a washing machine in a country where there were very few washing machines. There were also very few cars that you would see. And the ones that you did see were often very old. Many of them were the old Soviet Lada cars. You can Google it if you want to see what they look like. And there were very few motorcycles. And the ones that you would see were the old Soviet Minsk bikes. Bicycles were still king. I bought a Chinese bike that the best I could find. And I found a little bamboo seat, which I strapped to the back so I could take my daughter for a ride. And boy, did we ever stand out. They were still calling foreigners there, Lienso, Lienso, Soviets, because they were the only Westerners around during the previous 15 years. Now, the Vietnamese loved my blonde-haired daughter, but they kept scolding us for allowing her to throw her hat off when she was sitting in the back of the bicycle. And they would say, Nang, Nang, bright sunshine, the, the sun's going to get her, stay out of the sunshine. But it's futile. You, you, you know, a child's going to whip it off. So there's nothing you can do about it. We were just different in everything that we did. We would travel to Hanoi on occasion, sometimes by train. Other times, if the school was sending a van, we would catch a ride. You could buy cheese in Hanoi. So yeah, we had to get there from time to time to buy cheese. Because we had yet to find a place in Haiphong that sold cheese. Even peeing was different. I remember once I was traveling with some school officials from and uh, to Hanoi and back, and we were. I was with one of the one of the officials. He was a very well educated man, spoke wonderful English. And the van stopped at the side of the road, and he asked, "Mark, do you need to make water?" Uh, <laughs> I knew what that meant. I said yes, but you know, I looked around. I didn't really see any place to do that, but all of them, they just kind of lined up at the edge of the rice field and let it go. It was the outdoor stalls. And actually, if truth be told, one of the nicest bathrooms I had ever experienced in Vietnam. It was it had beautiful scenery and fresh air. What was I seeing in 1994 Vietnam? I didn't know. I was still a young man myself. But as I learned and I started reading and I started listening to the, the people around me, I began to hear about the time when the government provided.
And without a doubt, the word I heard over and over to describe that period of time was without fail, ho, miserable, misery. That period of time began right after the Vietnam War, right up until about 1985-86 when things started to change in Vietnam. Vietnam was a country of rice without rice. It was a country of abundant natural resources with no method to use them. It was a country with an abundance of food with people literally starving. And this last point was crucial. Ho Chi Minh, during his revolution against the French, used the fact that the Vietnamese people were hungry and they were starving as a way to vilify the French, with great cause, actually. There was tremendous famine in Vietnam under French rule, and the French had warehouses full of grain, which they would not distribute to the people who needed it. This was an important issue that the communist rebels used against the French. But now with the communists in charge, with the war in the past, we had a problem. You would have people in the early 1980s from the countryside straggle into Hanoi, starving to death, literally. One of my students would tell me about how there was no rice for them to eat and they had to eat this low quality grain that came from Eastern Europe type you might feed to your livestock. That's all they could get. It was ko, miserable. The communists realized they had a big problem on their hands. But before we get to the solution, I want to dig in a little bit more about Toy Baokup, the time the government supplied. Bicycles. If you had a bicycle during that time, you might be considered rich. You could be stopped by the authorities and asked, how is it that you can afford a bicycle? A chicken. Now, let's just say that you were fortunate enough to have a chicken that you were able to cook one day. There are stories that people would close up the house. They would cook way in the back, trying to stop the aroma from wafting out onto the street just in case someone might wander by and think, how could they afford to cook a chicken? Those years were often called the brick years. There was long lines that people would have to wait at the government-funded stores to get their items or to get their rations of supplies or whatever, whatever that might be. But they would wait for hours and hours and hours on end. And so people would bring bricks and they would write their name on the brick and they would put it in line to save their place in the queue. This was the reality of the Toy Bao Cup. But if you go to Vietnam today, you'll be stunned by the commercialism that you see, the vibrant markets, the street vendors, the malls, the storefronts on every street. But none of that existed in the time when the government supplied. And this is the irony. It was called the time when the government supplied, but you see the problem. They supplied basically nothing. This parallels what had been going on in China. There was the turmoil of the Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong in the 60s and into the 70s and until the time of his death in 1976. His successor, uh, Deng Xiaoping, opened up the economy, focusing on what he called, what he termed the four modernizations, agriculture, industry, defense, and science. And they lessened the quotas for rice production, meaning that farmers could keep for themselves and sell that which was above the government-required quotas. And guess what? production soared, incentives. You will do more 
if it benefits yourself. We are inherently greedy that way. But this is not a mystery. I've been a teacher for the last couple of decades, and a student will do anything if it benefits themselves. But put them in a group where their individual contributions <laughs> may not be weighed as important, and they will attempt to do as little as possible. I remember one, one example from my own life. Um, senior year of college, I was building uh, with a, a couple friends. We were building a wall for one of the professors, and we were getting a certain rate. And uh, we were slogging along at a steady pace, making what I thought was good progress, but he wanted it done quicker. And so he said, I'll give you this much extra if you get all of the work done by Friday. So it's the same amount of work overall, but a little extra incentive. So we kicked it into high gear and we got it done. Vietnam went from not being able to feed their own country to being the number two exporter of rice in the world in a very short period of time. How? What happened? It wasn't communism that did anything. It wasn't socialism that changed things. This is capitalism, allowing the individual to seek their own opportunities, their own interests, and by doing so, benefiting others. This was not socialism. The great uh, Vietnamese general, uh, Vo Nguyen Zop, he was a contemporary of Ho Chi Minh against the French and, and against the Americans. He said in an interview, and I believe it was with uh, Stanley Carnow in the 1990s, he said that socialism isn't meant to be an economic system. There needs to be a period of time for capitalism to build up a country before socialism can, before socialism can build its utopia. Now, those those last three words are mine, not his, but that's how I view it. The only way to alleviate poverty is to create wealth. Now you can distribute wealth that a country has through, you know, through government fiat, but as Margaret Thatcher said, eventually you're going to run out of everyone else's money. But the thing is expanding a country's economy is not a zero sum game. Creating wealth does not take from one and give to another. It expands the playing field for everyone. It makes the economic pie bigger. So what was I looking at in the 1990s when I first came to Vietnam? Maybe I'll call it a capitalistic renaissance. People were looking at possibilities for the first time in their lives. Whether it was a poor boy from the countryside he lived on the Hanoi streets, shining shoes or selling packs of Wrigley's gum. Or the woman carrying vegetables or flowers balanced on her shoulder with a long pole, walking hours daily into the city each morning to sell her meager wares because it was worth it to her. Families pulling together to start a business in the front of their house. And, you know, by the time I left Vietnam, in 2003, it would have been hard to find a structure fronting a busy street which didn't sell or market something. The dream, the Honda dream, oh, the little Honda motorbike, it proliferated in the 1990s and into the 2000s. You had arrived if you no longer had to use a bicycle. I bought one of those Honda dreams. I do miss that little thing. And then from 
this proliferation proliferation of bicycle or motorbikes, you had uh, services popping up. You had people washing motorbikes on the sides of the street, patching tires, servicing them. We flew to uh, Ho Chi Minh City in uh, 1995 just as a way to experience the South a little bit. And we heard that there was a Baskin Robbins. And we were dying for something like that. And we went to Baskin Robbins, I believe, pretty much every night that we were in Hanoi. And I still remember the figure. We blew $28 on ice cream that week. Now, that was a huge sum back in 1994, especially considering the salaries that we were getting. You know, and it wasn't long until that iconic ice cream shop opened in Hanoi, too. We moved to Hanoi in 1997, and one of my neighbors there told me that, you know, lots of people could afford a car, but the roads and the infrastructure are so bad, so they didn't buy one. Not yet. There was just tremendous, tremendous economic growth all around. You would see five-star hotels. The, the Daewoo Hotel opened up in the late 1990s. The, the Hanoi Opera Hilton opened up. Uh, we got a king suite, probably one of the nicest hotel rooms I ever had in my life, at the Malia Hotel. It was a five-star that opened in the late, late 1990s. And we got it for just a fraction of what it would have cost anywhere else in the world. And it was especially during that 1998 economic downturn. Everything was so incredibly cheap for a foreigner like myself. But you had foreign manufacturing plants starting to pop up outside the city and huge numbers of people would apply to work for the foreign corporation. Hope. There was hope for the first time in a generation. Hope that a parent's child would have a better life than they had. So from my experiences, when someone in America bashes capitalism, I usually chuckle to myself. Recently, Bernie Sanders is on a book tour for his new book called um, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. <laughs> and yet, he's charging $95 through Ticketmaster to attend these events. It's, you know, it's one of these things I just say, God bless America. Good for him. But I will admit, the commercialization of Vietnam does make me a little sad, even for an ardent defender of capitalism that I am. When I heard about that they opened a KFC near the iconic Huan Kim Lake in the center of Hanoi, I, I cringed a little bit. I was a little sad about that. Uh, I was like, couldn't there be a middle ground where people could thrive in their own culture without the globalization? But that is a fantasy. It's not the world we live in. The homogenization of fast food culture and now Mass media consumption is just part of the economic climb of capitalism. The good with the bad. You know, give me a bowl of pho on a dusty Vietnam street corner any day of the week over a Big Mac. And if you had listened to episode two, you'll truly understand how far I've come. But who am I to decide for everyone else? Shouldn't they get to experience McDonald's for themselves if they want? And they can decide if they would prefer the Big Mac or a bowl of pho. You know, it's hard to imagine the changes that have occurred in Vietnam for these past 30 years since I moved there. But make no mistake about it. The changes occurred 
because of one thing, capitalism. Capitalism saved Vietnam. So go ahead and rail against the free market if you like. But I saw with my own eyes and heard with my own ears what a society without capitalism, without open markets, really looks like. And for me, I'll say no thank you to a government who's trying to provide for me. Thanks for listening to the Crossing Ideas podcast. Coming up in episode four, my life as a spy, even though I wasn't one. That's next time on the Crossing Ideas podcast. I'm Mark Sassy. I'd love to hear your comments. Make sure to click follow for all future episodes.